Our reading this morning is taken from Luke, starting at chapter 26, verse 26, sorry, as I've been instructed to do by Linda this morning. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his word and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come to you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born and will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who said was unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be, may it be to according your word, then the angel left her. At the time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pause and pray as Linda brings her reflections to us this morning. Father, may your glorious light, radiant, which reaches into all parts of our being, transform our hearts and minds through the words of Scripture and through the reflections we're about to hear. We pray that your Holy Spirit may speak through Linda now as she brings your word to us. This we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. I know I'm small, but I'm not that small, so I'm just going to raise this, if you don't mind. Sorry? No? I think 
fine, thank you. So today, we reach the third in our Sunday series of Advent Reflections. We've lit three candles, and we've had a series of two reflections so far, and this is the third in that series. And each of our reflections focuses on a particular group of people whom God chose to use as instruments in his great plan for history and eternity. They're all people who were key to God's rescue plan for humankind, people without whom Jesus could not have been born as a baby in Bethlehem on that very first Christmas, to be the light and life of the world, and ultimately to become its saviour. Down the ages, the Christian church has used Advent traditionally to think about these key groups of people, to remember what they did, to celebrate their example. The first Sunday is generally dedicated to the patriarchs, people like Abraham, who heard and responded to the call of God, setting out, as Matthew uh, told us, on the journey of faith in hope and trust to become the father of God's people Israel. The second week is generally dedicated to the prophets, people like Elijah, whom Jonathan told us about last week, who faithfully proclaimed as God's messenger the love, justice, and mercy of God in their own time and place, calling God's people, Israel, back on track in their own journey of faith under God's leading. And today, well, traditionally, we would be looking at John the Baptist, and next week, we would be looking at Mary, two more key people. But when we planned this series, we thought, well, there's the Nativity next Sunday morning, so perhaps we can conflate Sundays 3 and 4 and bring together John the Baptist and the story behind John the Baptist and Mary and her story and create a reflection focusing on another P, this time parents. I don't know about you, but if I think about the prophets, I find it difficult to imagine myself like Abraham setting out on a journey to an unknown land and an uncertain future. And I find it difficult to imagine what it must have been like to be Elijah, who stood at the mouth of a mountain cave in the presence of God Almighty. Their lives and their experiences just seem very far removed from my own. But I'm still grateful for the example they set us of what it means to trust in God and to be faithful to him in times of uncertainty and challenge. But if I think about the third group of people, parents, then I feel I identify much more with them. They too were people chosen by God. They still are chosen by God to help fulfill his great plan for history and eternity. You heard some specific parental names mentioned in our reading this morning. Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zechariah. But it's fair to say that these four particular parents stand in a long line of parental figures throughout the Bible and beyond through Christian history who've been used by God down the ages and from whose example we have much to learn. So parents, for me, seem a much more ordinary group of people, much more relevant in some ways than either the patriarchs or the prophets of the Old Testament, because we all have some idea of what it means to be a parent. We all have some experience 
of parents, regardless of whether we have had children ourselves. We have all had, or still have, parents and grandparents of our own. We may have only a hazy idea of what it means to to be a patriarch or a prophet, but we all know something about parenting, regardless of whether we have our own children. We see it around us every day in our own families, in uh, the families of our friends, in our local neighborhoods and communities, and in wider society. And we understand something of how being a parent brings with it joys, hopes, and a sense of fulfillment but also frustrations, disappointments, and an overwhelming need for self-sacrifice. So let's take a look at the parent figures in our Bible passage today and just see what we can learn from them that may have relevance for our own lives in this Advent season. The four particular parents in this passage, Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, and Zechariah, all belonged more or less to the same time and place, But they were rather different, both as individuals and as couples. Let's start with Elizabeth and Zechariah. They were married. They had been for many years, it seems. So they can be described as mature in years or advanced in age or just old, if you want to say. They both came from highly respected Jewish families and they enjoyed good standing in their community. Zechariah was a well-educated priest of the Jewish faith who served from time to time as a worship leader in the temple at Jerusalem. Both of them loved God and they were utterly faithful in their relationship and walk with him. And yet for most of their married life, they lived with the great sadness and regret that they had no children of their own. Perhaps one of the things we can appreciate most about Elizabeth and Zechariah's journey of faith is their constancy and faithfulness, not just to God, but to one another. And I find it very poignant that according to Jewish law, and Zechariah was a priest, he could have divorced Elizabeth on the grounds of her childlessness. But he didn't. He chose not to do that. And I think God probably counted that as righteousness. So they remained married, had no children. He served faithfully as a priest in the temple. And then one day when all human hope had been extinguished, God does a remarkable thing in the way that only God can. During a time of public worship and waiting on God, an angel, a messenger of God, comes close to Zechariah, promising that Elizabeth, his wife of many years, will give birth to a son whose name will be John. And Luke, as he does so often, paints a beautifully detailed and convincing picture for us of Zechariah's natural human reactions to this news. Shock fear, amazement, disbelief. And in the end, Zechariah was literally dumbstruck at this news. 
For me, the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah reminds us that God specifically chooses ordinary human beings with all their complex mixed emotions, with all their weaknesses and their vulnerabilities, with all their frailties and their sense of inadequacy to cooperate with him in his plan. God accepts us as we are, despite our less than ideal circumstances, despite our lack of faith, despite our confusion and our emotional turmoil, and yet he still graciously invites us into the heart of his eternal plan and purposes. In human terms, were Zechariah and Elizabeth the ideal choice to be parents? Probably not, given their age and their circumstances. And yet, God saw beyond the superficial disadvantages to something much deeper and more relevant. And I believe that Elizabeth and Zechariah's primary qualification for being chosen by God to become the parents of John the Baptist was that they loved God deeply, they had walked faithfully with him all their married life, and when God called them to do something incredible, and potentially hugely sacrificial at their age of life. They said, yes. In fact, I often feel that given their advanced years, Elizabeth and Zechariah had probably been exercising considerable parenting skills long before they became parents of John. For the capacity for parental love and care does not only belong to people who have children of their own. The exercise of parental care and love is something to which all of us can be called as members of the Christian family. And I would testify that Nigel and I are so grateful to God for those who have shared with us in the parenting of our own two daughters over more than 30 years. Their godparents who prayed for them and maintained an interest over time and often at geographical distance. Their teachers and their youth leaders who helped develop their knowledge, understanding and their love of God. The parents of their school friends who sometimes provided them with a safe haven and a shoulder to cry on during the turbulent teenage years. So many people have been involved in co-parenting with us as our own children grew up, and we thank God for that. And perhaps that's a role we can all play. Just read the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 2. There's a good biblical precedent for co-parenting here, shared parenting. If you read that story, there are two questions you could ask. Who were Moses' parents? And that's a fairly easy question to answer. But if you ask the question, who was involved in the parenting of Moses? That's a much more interesting question. I'm also grateful to those who've been spiritual parents to me in my Christian journey since my childhood years. Spiritual parents who fed me the right sort of diet, who encouraged me, to take the right sort of exercise, who helped me to grow and to develop, showing me where the safe boundaries were 
and even welcoming back as a prodigal daughter. Most of us can probably look back to the influence of spiritual parents in our own lives. And it's good to remember and give thanks for such people, as we actually did on the first Sunday in Advent, when Mike invited us to light tea lights of remembrance and thanksgiving. So perhaps Advent is a good time to reflect upon our own role as a spiritual parent within God's family. Who has God called you to care for spiritually? Who looks up to you for parental guidance and encouragement in their faith journey? And how are you fulfilling that calling from God? Who are you helping to grow up in their spiritual life towards spiritual maturity? And if you're not sure about that, then maybe ask God to show you someone for whom you could fulfill that important role. But equally, we too are children in need of spiritual parenting, not just from God our Father, but from the family that he has placed us within, this family, here, in this time and place. We benefit from having someone taking the role of a spiritual parent in our lives, helping us to grow up strong and secure in God's family, from childhood, through adolescence, and into maturity. And this process and journey may have little to do with how old we are in years. It's more about how mature we are in the Christian faith. Where do you go to find that spiritual parent who can guide and support you in your Christian life? Is it a home group leader? Is it a minister? Is it a spiritual director? Who can help you to grow up to be like Jesus, as Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians? Again, there's a, a biblical precedent for this. In their early letters to the emerging churches of the New Testament, Paul and the other apostles often wrote of seeing themselves like fathers, caring for the children they loved and had brought to birth in the Christian faith. And in the early centuries of Christianity, it was quite common for disciples to venture out into remote desert places, seeking out the desert fathers and mothers who would help them to grow in their faith. I have to say, I don't regard myself as being as committed and as adventurous as some of those early disciples. So that's something we can take from the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And it's good to give them a bit of attention because usually at this time of year, the attention goes to the other set of parents in the story, Joseph and Mary. Though they came from the same time and culture as Zechariah and Elizabeth, and Mary and Elizabeth were actually related in family terms, their personal circumstances were, of course, very different. Mary was young, probably in her teens, early teens, living with her family. 
Joseph was probably somewhat older, working as a carpenter in Nazareth. They were engaged, but they were not yet formally married. So while the angel's message to Zechariah and Elizabeth of the forthcoming birth of a son brought overwhelming joy for them, the angel's message to Mary and to Joseph was a different matter altogether. It was far less attractive in the circumstances and in some senses far more disturbing. And the gospel writers again give us a touching picture of the range of human emotions that Mary and Joseph experienced on receiving this news. Matthew's account tells us of Joseph's heart-searching about what to do. While Luke describes Mary's emotional confusion, she was greatly troubled, full of questions and anxieties. So we see their very human and understandable emotional reactions which are somewhat at odds with the more rosy and sentimental portrayal of Mary and Joseph in art and literature and even film. But I believe that God knew well the qualities of the particular human beings that he had chosen to be the parents of Jesus. He knew of Joseph's integrity and of his capacity for constancy, even amidst adversity. Like Zechariah, he could have formally divorced Mary in the circumstances. And I believe God knew of Mary's openness to God's spirit and of her capacity for trust and self-sacrifice, even to the point of watching her son die on a cross. There would be a cost to Mary's mothering of Jesus just as there would be a cost for Zechariah and Elizabeth, just as there is a cost in all parenting. But that cost, that sacrifice, is what we remember here today as we gather around the communion table. God knew, I believe, that he was placing his only beloved son in safe hands to be born as a baby in Bethlehem, to grow up as a child in Galilee, to teach and to heal as a grown man throughout Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to become the saviour of the world on a cross outside Jerusalem. As always, God knew what he was doing. He chose his parents well, however unworthy and inadequate they might have felt about themselves. I'd like to end this reflection on parents and parenting by playing part of a song by Amy Grant. It's called Mary's Song, and it's set to some scenes from the film The Nativity, which some of you will have seen. For me, this particular film sequence, which relates to approximately half of the song, captures the reality of those mixed human emotions when facing the call of God on our lives as Mary did. And I would encourage you to watch the faces of Mary, of Joseph, and of Mary's own parents as they struggle with the pain 
as well as the joy of that role. And the words of the song form, to some extent, a prayer that we can imagine Mary making as she pondered and responded to God's call to play a key role in his story of salvation. Elizabeth, why is it me God has asked? I am nothing. Oh, words of the song are Mary's prayer that God's breath of heaven will somehow equip her for the role that he has chosen her to play. And the reality is that God continues to choose and call all of us to participate in his eternal plan for all humankind and all creation, both as human parents and in sharing in the parenting and as spiritual parents. And so perhaps we can make Mary's song 
our own prayer in response to God's call. And during the distribution of communion, you will hear that song again in full, set against a number of images to help us in our reflections. Amen.